Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty and Everlasting Father, we gather in this place because we hope to experience your presence. We hope we will hear your word and that it will connect with our hearts. So Lord God, I pray you'll pour out your spirit upon us now as we read your word, as I preach your word, and as we receive it. I pray it will connect with us deep within. So, Lord God, speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The man with the shriveled hand wasn't asking Jesus to heal him. He'd come to synagogue that Sabbath to do what he had been doing his whole life. He came to pray. He came to worship the Lord God. He came to hear the Word of God. He didn't even know that this Jesus would be in his synagogue that Sabbath day. But Jesus saw him, and he had compassion on him. Perhaps he was inspired by that man's faith, even though his life was very, very difficult. Jesus also knew that there were others in synagogue that day who came looking for an excuse to accuse him, condemn him, hoping he'd do something crazy that day like heal someone on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up. And then he addressed that small crowd there in the synagogue. So what do you think? Is it lawful in the sight of God to do good on the Sabbath? Is helping a neighbor on the Sabbath day an evil thing? Nobody said a word. And in that silence, something stirred deep within Jesus in that moment. At first, it was... Anger, just raw anger at the hard hearts of those before him who cared more about trivial legalistic rules than the broken man who stood before them. That anger gave way to sorrow, a deep sorrow, a sadness for that man who stood before the crowd in need of compassion. Sadness for those who had no compassion, but only their rule-laden religion used to bludgeon and judge others. And then Jesus did exactly what they were hoping he would do. He said to that man standing, holding his shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And that man looked up and he looked into the eyes of Jesus and he saw love, he saw compassion, he felt the power in those words and he stretched out his hand and it was made whole. It was restored completely. Now you'd think, you would think witnessing something like that would bring people out of their seats in praise and adoration of God, but alas... That's not what happened. The Pharisees in the crowd decided then and there to begin planning how they might kill Jesus because he broke all the rules. 
Immediately before this incident, Jesus had said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that doesn't mean we should ignore the Sabbath. We still need a Sabbath rest. Just don't fill it with trivial legalism. Our culture, it seems to me, needs to rediscover a Sabbath because we don't do rest very well in this culture. I saw a shirt in Cafe Java, uh, one of my favorite eateries, uh, a number of years ago. It was one of the servers who had a T-shirt on, and on the shirt it said, Drink more coffee. Do stupid stuff faster. And that seems sort of to sum up a lot of what we're about these days. Oh, I'm tired. I'm so tired. I hear that frequently in response to the question, how are you? I'm so tired. And in Hebrews 4, the author describes a Sabbath rest that remains for God's people. It may be the true rest that we all need. The title of this message is A Better Rest. I'm preaching through Hebrews, and we're going to pick up with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Now, there'll be some references in the text to Psalm 95, uh, where uh, the psalmist refers to the exodus and the rejection of entering into God's rest. So that's where that's coming from, some of the references, uh, and you'll, you'll see what I mean, I think. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now he's talking about people following Moses through the desert, and they didn't enter. Verse 3, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on earth in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Verse 7. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, reference to Psalm 95 here, as it was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. (coughs) Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before His eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now there's a mouthful there, but let me see if I can break it down a little bit to what God wants us to get from this passage today. The main idea, I think, is right there in verse 9, right in the kind of the center of the passage. And it's that verse that says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's talking to Christians here, Jewish followers of Christ, probably the original recipients of this letter. So they would understand all of that Old Testament background that's referenced uh, earlier in the chapter, in, in the book. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew verb Shabbat, which means primarily, simply, Stop, cease, desist. The term we find here in verse 9 is a little bit different from that. It's a little broader. It's based on that. It's sabbatismas, which is Sabbath keeping. And it indicates this kind of perpetual rest that is supposed to be enjoyed by believers in fellowship with God, both in this life and in eternity. And we find three different kinds of rest here in Hebrews chapter 4. So let's run through them. Uh, Three rests in Hebrews 4. Number one, God's rest on the seventh day. The first biblical reference to the Sabbath rest is found in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. When we read in Genesis there, by the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. I like what Marva Dawn says about this uh, in her little book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. She writes, to keep the Sabbath holy means to recognize the rhythm of six days of work and one day of ceasing work is written into the very core of our beings. It's more than a suggestion that might help if you're tired all the time. The need for a Sabbath rest is hardwired by God in all of us. Even God rested. And when it says God rested, I don't think he took a nap. I think he paused. He stopped because he had completed his work of creation. So he stopped to celebrate, enjoy his completed work. I think that's what it means. And we also are called in a, the rhythmic pattern of six days of work and one day of rest to stop celebrate, enjoy the fruit of our our labor, but it's more than that. So how dare any of us act as though our contribution to this world, well, it's so essential that I can't possibly take time to rest. Even God rested. And not only did God bless the seventh day and make it holy, He commands His people to observe it. And we find that in in, in one of those Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Notice it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's meant to be a God-centered rest. Cease and desist. 
Just stop to rest your body and then refresh your soul by refocusing your heart and your mind on your Creator and your Redeemer. This commandment is a gift. God's affirming a day of rest, that it's good, it's okay, it's expected that one day a week we disengage from all the good regular work that you do and celebrate that, rest in that, and turn your heart to your Creator and your Redeemer. Now, by the time of Jesus, and at the time of the story I told at the beginning, which we read about in Mark chapter 3, the Sabbath observance had become such an oppressive, tangled legal system that people were missing the point, which was to give them rest, not add burdens to them by, uh, by instituting all of these different trivial rules regulating the Sabbath and forbidding things like, oh, I don't know, healing someone or helping a neighbor. God is affirming that rest and Jesus himself, he, he had to break through that sense of legalism and he did. But nowhere does he rescind the command of the seventh. He doesn't say, now I'm here, you hear the gospel, we're New Testament people, don't worry about that. He never does that. Number two, the second rest we read, is Joshua's promised land rest. It says in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, and that was, that was meant, what he's talking about there, that word rest is being used in a little bit different way in the sense of the settlement of the promised land. So it's a rest from their travel, a rest from their long journey. It was a rest in the sense of having arrived at their destination. Now, Numbers 13 and 14 tell how Israel came to the border of the promised land, and then they turned back in fear. And so, so we get that sense of disobedience. They fell short because of their disobedience. And remember, in Hebrews, disobedience is almost always equal to unbelief. That's what he's talking about. God brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He provided water. He provided food. He had given them commandments, the Ten Commandments, to instruct them in how to relate to Him and to each other in a way that would be healthy and whole. And the people, they always had the option to follow His lead, to believe Him, God, or not. Sadly, they chose or not. And then we are given the same warning. We've got to heed the same warning. Verse 2 tells us that hearing must be combined with faith. Whatever God does on our behalf, we must respond with faith, belief, and obedience. They go together. God initiates, people respond by believing, by faith. That fills them with gratitude and a desire to serve God, to be obedient. Not out of fear, but out of love, out of joy. In verse 6, the word translated disobedience is the Greek word apatheia, meaning obstinate unbelief. We're not talking about random occasional failure to obey all of these commands. No, the author means the kind of disobedience that turns away from God completely in unbelief. In verse 7, 
the imperative is in the quote. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't become stubborn and callous to God speaking good things into your life. Even those who did follow Joshua into Canaan proved again and again to have hard, unbelieving hearts. So this Psalm 95 that quotes that experience in the desert points forward looking ahead to yet another rest, a third rest, which from the psalmist's point of view was yet to come in the future. And it's what I would call our third rest. I would call it a now and later rest. There remains, in verse 9, we read, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that? Well, it's a now and later experience for all of those who put their faith and trust in Christ, who believe, who don't turn away from God. Now, let's start with the, the later, okay? The later it comes in heaven, after death, or the return of the Lord. As we read in Revelation 14, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. So there is a later rest that we look forward to, a complete rest that is an eternal rest, not sleep. We're not talking about sleep. The idea of, making, uh, of, of eternal life is not a, a big nap. No, it's an eternal rest, not from sleep, but it's relief, relief from sin, from temptation, from frustration, relief from separation from God, relief from separation from one another. That is so exhausting in this life. There's rest in that. Now, somebody in the church foyer before the service asked me a question about heaven and so forth, and my my response was, hey, nobody knows. Not a whole lot is revealed in, in the Scripture. There's quite a bit of mystery that remains in what that's actually going to be like. But we do know this. It means abiding in peace in the presence of God. And that will be far better, I'm pretty sure, than anything we can imagine. So there is a later rest that we look forward to. But it means also a now kind of rest. The now part of the equation means practicing the presence of God through remembering that fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. It says in verse 11, Let us therefore make every effort, so there's something we're supposed to do, to enter that rest. Now, I like the way the New City Catechism breaks down the Ten Commandments. And when the New City Catechism gets to the fourth commandment, it asks the question, what does God require in the fourth commandment? And the answer that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. So there is an anticipation of what is to come, and yet also a practice of Sabbath that gives us a, a sense of the presence and peace and rest in God. How do we do that? That's the big question. And let me just admit up front, I don't have this down perfect either. I'm looking forward to a better rest someday. But in the meantime, 
I want to be obedient to verse 11 and say, that says make every effort to enter that rest. How do we make an effort to do that? Well, we practice the Sabbath, and here's how to do that according to uh, uh, James K. Smith wrote a little book we read in men's group many years ago, and it talks about the Christian life, different aspects, and he, he deals with the Sabbath rest. And James K. Smith offers five uh, kind of ways to practice a Sabbath. So here they are. I'm going to run through them real quick. Number one, plan. Plan what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. For example, if you're going to practice a Sabbath day rest, are you going to answer your cell phone? Well, if you are, then you might miss out on part of the Sabbath rest God wants for you. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how to fix that for you. You have to plan on what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, right? Number two, pray. Set a time for private prayer and meditation. Now, I don't know how that works for you. For me, as I've told you, I think, you know, maybe too many times, I like to write in a prayer journal. I like that. It helps me. It helps me to focus. I just enjoy it. I enjoy writing what happened yesterday, and I like reading Scripture and writing down a verse and then reflecting on that and writing down the people's names that I pray for, beginning with my family and our elders and our staff and people who are sick and people who are looking for jobs. I, just, I like to write that out. I just It helps me. That may not be useful for you, but you might want to try it. Something else that I think sometimes people find really useful and helpful in focused prayer would be prayer walks. I do that too, not as regularly as I write in my journal, but occasionally I'll go by myself and walk through Fluger Park at lunch, just down the street here, Gilliland Park actually, and I don't mind being by myself because I like to walk and hear the birds and hear the water running in the creek, and I can talk to God and just be in His presence. But if you're going to practice a Sabbath, you have to have a plan, and you have to include in that plan a time for you to pray the way that's going to connect with your soul. Number three, praise. That means go to church. I mean, the catechism says public and private worship, and I think that's very helpful. There's got to be times when you worship God in the privacy of your own house or wherever, but Sabbath is a time to come together and for us to praise God together. There is a rhythm to this. So, look, I'm just going to tell you the truth. It bothers me when, when people come to church once a month. I'm like, uh, not because, it bothers me because I think God created us with this kind of rhythm where once a week we practice a Sabbath and we need part of that to be that experience of worshiping God together. And over time, as we keep with that rhythm, it does something good in our soul. And you may not even always be aware of it. So go to church. Worship God with others. Praise Him. Number four, practice hospitality. As Jesus showed us in the synagogue in that little story in Mark 3, a good thing on the Sabbath is to help somebody, bless someone. That's a good thing. Number five, and no, it is five, not one. So keep the priorities straight here. But number five, would be play. I was so glad James K. Smith came up with that and I didn't have to add it myself. It's okay and good to play. Now here's how that works for me and then you have to figure out how it work works for you. Now as a pastor, Sunday's not really my Sabbath because it's, 
it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's a work day. It, it's, it's days that I'm engaged. It's part of my Sabbath in the sense that I love to come and worship, and I get to experience worship at 9 o'clock and worship again at 10.30, and often I'll stay and worship again at noon in our Spanish service. I, I, I like going to, to the cafe afterwards. and hang. That is a part of Sabbath, and I'm, I'm not really working. I'm just worshiping and enjoying that. But a part of it is this focus thing. If little things go wrong, it's distracting and, and so on. So I practice... Sabbath, really, on Monday. That's my official day off. And a couple of things I do on that, that day off. I don't take so many phone calls. I just don't. I, I don't think I'm so important that I always have to be in contact with the world. I've never understand that perspective. Uh, like I used to say before, I had a cell phone. I'm not always available, but God is. So... I'm okay being out of touch a little bit. And when it comes to play, I like to play golf. So Sunday afternoons, I'll play golf, usually with a very good friend of mine who doesn't go to this church, which makes him really useful to play golf with on Monday because the last thing I want to do is talk about church. Sorry. One day a week, I don't want to think about it. And golf helps me in the sense that when I'm playing golf, I'm very competitive, and we're about the same level. We have a little trophy we actually pass back and forth, and it's in his truck right now, so there, there you go. I'm competitive, and golf forces me to focus on the game itself. So when I'm playing golf, all I'm thinking about is the last shot I just messed up or the next shot that I'm going to hit perfect. That's all I'm thinking about. And for four hours, I'm not thinking about you. <laughs> all right. I'm, not th- I'm not thinking about what I'm going to preach I'm not thinking about who I need to visit in the hospital. For four hours, I'm not thinking about it. That's a Sabbath. So play is that healthy distraction. Now, you can overdo that, but it's, it's, it's a part of it. So plan and pray and praise and practice hospitality. And yeah, play. It's good. Then we get down to verse 13, which warns us that we must give an account. That's a little scary. That bothers me. And the word of God is the standard. And then he describes the word of God as living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Well, that's a weapon. That's scary. It penetrates, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I find that intimidating. That seems like bad news to me. That makes me feel like I'm in trouble. I fear the day I stand before God to give full account of not only my actions, but my thoughts and my attitudes. But thank God, I have a high priest, and so do you, who intercedes for us. More about that next week, because that's the next segment of chapter 4. Christ, a better high priest. And that Christ wants us to have a Sabbath rest. He doesn't want you to be worn out with life all the time. He wants you to know there is a full rest that is coming. And if you want a taste of the God's Sabbath rest now, then believe. Have faith, practice 
that fourth commandment. Figure out how to do that in your life. It will pay off. It will create this rhythm of work that is good and holy and rest that is good and holy. Have faith that you will experience it in full throughout all eternity. And what's it going to be like? Like I said before, there's some mystery there. I can't tell you for sure. But I have an idea. When I think about this eternal rest with God, I think back to when I was a small boy. And I was a fearful boy at night. I had nightmares frequently. And I can remember being seven, eight, ten years old. And I can remember in the dark in my room upstairs waking up from a nightmare, being absolutely terrified, terrified, so scared that I was paralyzed with the covers up to here because covers are great protection from whatever's out there. And the fear wouldn't go away. And I can remember thinking, if I can just find the courage to crawl out of bed and run through the darkness down the steps to my mom and dad's room and sneak in their room and get near my dad, I'll be okay. And it was true. I would finally muster that courage and I couldn't take the fear anymore and I would dash down the steps to their room, sneak in there, and sometimes I wouldn't even wake them up. Because waking up, my dad wasn't always great. Uh, I just needed to be close. And there were times I would lay down on the carpeted floor next to their bed and that's all I needed. And then the fear was gone. I was okay. I could rest secure under my dad's loving protection. I think that's the kind of rest we're going to experience from God. Under the protection of our Heavenly Father, all fear, all terrible thoughts, all stress melts away and we will be able to rest in His presence. That's a Sabbath rest, I think. You might want to begin practicing a bit of it in that rhythm of Sabbath day. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God Almighty, for the gift of that fourth commandment. We're made to work, and we do. You give us good work, and we're made to experience the peace of a Sabbath rest. Help us not forget that, or fill it with silly things, or ignore it altogether, or think we're so important that we don't have time to rest. Help us, Lord God, to practice that rest as you intend, a rest for our bodies, a rest for our minds, and a refocusing of our hearts and souls on you, our creator, our redeemer, 
who pauses, who stops to celebrate your own good work. Celebrate that good work in our own souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the blessing. May you cease from your work and know the rest God has for you. The comforting, refreshing peace of being with Him. Amen.